Hey, what's happening, everybody? This is Brain Drain, and I'm your host, Connor McCann. Welcome to another episode, and thank you for checking in for this third episode so far. And this episode's going to be a little different. Different in a good way, though. Uh, first, the subject material will not include people getting killed serially, killed with serial, or killed by serial killers, nor will it include child soldiers. For those of you hoping for depressing content, you can still stay tuned because I'm sure I can come up with something at some point. But in addition to these differences, this episode will also be done in a more linear fashion. We're discussing the life of Bob Sapp, Bob the Beast Sapp, the legend Bob the Beast Sapp. And it would do this story more justice to tell it in a more linear fashion. Also, in contrast to the last couple of episodes, I actually have some experience with the subject matter. So we're going to be discussing mostly the sports of kickboxing and MMA, mixed martial arts. And I can say that I'm a huge, huge, huge MMA fan. I have been since 2003, give or take a year or so, um, which is when I first encountered Bob Sapp. And I practiced martial arts earlier in my youth. You can call me a martial artist. I wouldn't necessarily look at myself as such. I'm a guy that, like many people in this country, went to a karate school, you know, did point karate, did particularly kempo karate. You know, just growing up as a kid, there was a school in the neighborhood. I was fascinated, you know, with martial arts. My father was boxer back in Northern Ireland. And we used to watch the fights every Friday, every Saturday. Anytime something was on, we were on top of it. And I wanted to participate in my own way. So I did that for a couple of years. Later on, I trained Muay Thai for a very short amount of time. I believe about three months or so when I was 20. So I'm not going to claim any kind of expert uh, analysis on this one. I'm not because I am not a martial arts expert. I have watched a lot of mixed martial arts. That doesn't mean it's going to help me in a fight. Uh, I'm 37 years old. I got two bad knees. Pretty much any of you guys that walk up on me right now and just swing on me, you probably fuck me up. So, you know, I'm not going to act like I'm Billy Badass either. I am a big fan of the sport. I continue to follow the sport to this day. I'm very excited about the fights that are coming up this Saturday. So, which considering people might listen to this podcast at any given point in time. I'm not going to go into, hey, it's blah, 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 date. Fuck that. It's whenever you're listening to it. There's going to be some fights coming up, and I'm excited about those fights because I fucking love MMA. I mean, shit, I even pay for the pay-per-views. Like, I'm not saying that because this is a public platform. I would just, if I was, you know, stealing this shit, I would just get my steal on. And just talk about how great the sport is and not fucking say a word about how, you know, I watch my shit. But, you know, I even buy the pay-per-views. When the UFC first popped up in the early to mid-90s, I was cognizant of it. You know, I was in current martial arts practice at the time. I knew better than fucking ask my mom. I think it was 30, 50 bucks or something like that. That was a definite no at that time. Uh, <laughs> you know, I would have to, I would have to catch up on it later. And I first became... A real fan of the sport of MMA. You know, kickboxing, we talked about that very briefly. You know, I trained. I was a fan of it, but I wasn't watching kickboxing fights to that degree at that time. I did start watching MMA around the same time that I started training, so that would be about 2003. I was just hooked. 
absolutely hooked. But this episode isn't about me. It is about a man named Bob the Beast Sap, and we're going to get into it. In my research for this episode, I wasn't able to find a lot about his childhood. And you know what? So be it. We'll call it the forces of uh, the universe balancing out. Last episode was pretty childhood heavy. And if you haven't checked that out, it was about the serial killers who stopped killing. But this one, you know, I did research for the purpose of this podcast. I'm going to come on here, talk out of my ass, and make a bunch of shit up. But I looked. I looked. I did my best to find anything I could. And I didn't really find anything. I was able to find that he was born in 1973 in Colorado Springs, Colorado. I love Colorado. So if any Colorado folks are listening right now, shout out to you guys. You guys have a fucking awesome state. But he was born there, and he was a high school football player. And he um, he went on to have a good career with the University of Washington Huskies there in the, in the mid to late 90s. So in 1996, he won the Morris Award, which was given to not just defensive linemen, but any lineman. So offensive linemen as well. Whoever the best lineman in the conference was, they were awarded the, Mor- the Morris Award. And Bob received that. And that is for, it's not a NCAA-wide thing. It is just for the Pac-12. But considering the level of talent in college sports, he was a noteworthy player. To be awarded the best lineman in the whole conference, Bob was doing his thing. So before proceeding further about Bob's life, I guess the most uh, noticeable detail about him is that Bob is fucking humongous. He's maybe six foot four or six foot five, at least 300 pounds, more on the towards 400 pound side of things, and completely fucking jacked. Like just a huge guy with, you know, a six pack at that weight. And huge arms, defined shoulders. He's pretty much just like a head. And everything else on him is just a huge muscle. He's uh, fucking enormous. I'm not a small person myself. I'm about six foot or six one, about 235 or so. And I would look like a toothpick compared to Bob Zapp. So Bob had the combination of athletic talent, the ability to be coached, the ability to work on a team. Uh, I was really bad with the two of those last ones. I was really good at shooting jump shots as a as a kid. Uh, I had fucking accuracy. I was much shorter than everybody else. But coach would tell me some shit. Never having any kind of like organized basketball experience, I wouldn't know what the fuck he meant by it. And it was up to me to interpret it. Bob was not like that. Bob was a team player. Bob was very talented in addition to being humongous, he was talented enough to be taken in the third round of the 1997 NFL Draft by the Chicago Bears. Something that is a dream of many people, pro sports period, is a dream of many people. And so few people make it to that level. And so few people are active at that level of just playing that sport. So I'll say that, you know, I'll just get this out of the way. There's a lot of people that shit on Bob Sapp. And they shit on his uh, athletic offerings, and they shit on, I mean, his integrity, who he is as a person. Bob Sapp gets a lot of hate. Bob Sapp at one time got a lot of love as well, and I'm sure still does too. My view of Bob Sapp is Bob Sapp has my respect until otherwise. I don't know him. I can only go on the incredibly insane life he's lived, and I can possibly try to understand 
some of the choices that he might have made at this point in his life or later on. But what I'm not going to do is shit on Bob Sapp. That's not happening. And what I'm not going to do is say he wasn't talented, which he very much was. You know, with all that said, and with all respect given to Bob Sapp, his NFL career is really, really easy to sum up. He only ever played one game. But this alone isn't an indictment of his level of talent either. It's really not that uncommon for college-level players, talented college-level players, to make it to the league and just peter out or have short careers, never play, just never fit in, or just come to realize that perhaps their level of talent wasn't what was needed to make the league. It could have also been that there were other perhaps more strong, quicker, more agile linemen already on the team, people that already meshed with the people that already meshed with the system and just understood what the coach needed from them. Or it could have been the fact that Bob tested positive for steroids. That could have been the reason why his career fell apart. And by 1999, it was over for him. And he was broke, too. Like a lot of folks that come from either an impoverished background, communities of color, disadvantaged communities, when these folks make it to the league, a lot of times there's somebody waiting there to exploit it, to possibly scam them out of some money or sign on as their manager, even though they don't know shit about the basketball business, football business, or whatever. But they do know that perhaps this kid has never seen contract before or this, you know, a lot of times folks don't get the best education too. I I remember there was a dude up until we were in 10th grade, he didn't even know how to read. And it's not like when dude, and shout out to him, I'm not going to say his name, but if he hears this, shout out dude, much love. But it's not like he graduated eighth grade when he was 15 or something. He, He just got passed through the system. This happens to a lot of people and there's people waiting just to take what these folks have rightfully earned. And Bob, he was left with nothing. All he had was a dream to move beyond his present circumstances, to leave poverty behind, to stop working as a guy moving coffins and do something great because he knew or he had to know that something great was on his agenda. Ultimately, Bob, he he did something that scares a lot of people. He did something that a lot of people want to do but won't for a lot of reasons pursued his dream. He pursued a dream of something greater than what he had. And in 2000, he started wrestling for an independent company called NWA Wildside. During this time that he was wrestling for Wildside, Bob was offered a developmental deal with WCW, World Championship Wrestling. And WCW, their content at that time was pretty fucking terrible. I I was a wrestling fan as a kid. I watched WCW and I watched WWF, uh, World Wrestling Federation, now known as World Wrestling Entertainment. I watched both of them during this period. And earlier, you know, in the there's a time that's called the Monday Night Feuds where these two companies were jockeying for you know, the position of being the top wrestling company in America. Uh, to start it, there was a lot of really dumb shit that the WWF was doing. Just throwing stupid ideas out there, seeing whatever sticked, hoping something sticked. None of it did. It was a pretty terrible period for them, and WCW was on the ascent. However, by the time Bob received his contract, the inverse was true, and WCW was fucking... It was a, it was a chore to watch it at times, and 
there's plenty of reasons why this is the case. There's a really good book about it called The Death of WCW by a guy named Brian Alvarez that very extensively documents this whole period. And it was just fucking awful. No match like if you if you see you I mean even if you know it's prearranged and you still want to see a match have its conclusion. Like imagine watching a movie and I don't know, towards the end of the movie, a bunch of people from a different movie run in, kill everybody, just go, ka, 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 shoot the whole shit up, set off a nuke, whatever, and leave. And you're like, man, what the fuck just happened? And why did I watch all that other shit first if that's how it was going to end? And guess what? In like 2000, 2001, that was every single WCW match, it seemed like. It was always some bullshit like that. It was, you know, I watched it because there was a couple of wrestlers I thought was cool. They actually had, like, some good talent at that time. It's not like everybody sucked or was selfish or was this or that. But, nah, it just was, it was just a nightmare. And more than anything else, they criminally mismanaged talent, including a guy named Bob Sapp. And considering who Bob became later, to think that they had, you know, they, they had a guy they had a super, 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 superstar in their miss, and they completely overlooked him. Perhaps the uh, ship was sinking anyway, and it was like, why bring this dude on if we're just going to fucking be gone anyway? Which they were. In you know, 2001, they were bought out by Vince McMahon, and, and then Vince did a really shitty, uh, like, interpromotional storyline that could have been really cool, but wasn't, and kind of sucked. But ultimately, they decided not to pick up Bob's contract. So not only WCW, but also Vince McMahon, WWF, failed to see who this guy was or what he could be. While he was training during this developmental time, he was training at a place called the Power Plant in Atlanta, where WCW used to train all their the wrestlers. And it became an important time in his life, even though he found no pro wrestling fame in America at that time. It was still important for two reasons. One, he developed his beast persona, which people would fucking go crazy for in a very short amount of time, as we'll discuss in a short amount of time as well, I guess. But uh, but he also met somebody that'd be very important, not just for the trajectory of his career, but also the trajectory of his life. That man would be Australian kickboxing legend Sam Greco. So after WCW fell apart and Bob wasn't offered a contract by the WWF. He found himself booked in an early celebrity boxing match against a guy named William the Refrigerator Perry, uh, who was also a fellow ex-NFL player and fellow non-fighter. Bob had absolutely no boxing training, I believe, prior to this. And given his size, I don't even know how many people he just fought, period. My friend, I have a friend named Alexei, who's from the Russian city of Habarovsk. Uh, shout out to Alexei. And he told me that in Russia, it's the opposite of here. Where if you see some big muscle-bound motherfucker, people are going to want to fight him just to be able to say, yeah, I kicked that big motherfucker's ass over there. And I can say in America, being 6'5", 350 with uh, a six-pack and just traps that are as big as my arm, people probably left Bob alone, regardless of all this, he ended up dropping the fridge. He knocked them out. You know, the fridge was like 400-something-odd pounds plus at that time. So I guess you can say it's an accomplishment, but I saw the fridge and possibly rest in peace to the fridge. I don't know. I don't remember if he passed, but if so, rest in peace to him. 
and rest in peace to Manute Bowl, who played, uh, he played for the Warriors when I was a kid, and they had a boxing match, and man, that was, <laughs> that shit was awful, I do not recommend seeing that, so I'm not going to talk about much, you know, I don't, I don't like to disrespect the dead, so I'm going to leave it alone, but I'll just say that Bob not dropping the fridge, it, it wasn't the greatest achievement a man could have, but it was enough, though. It was enough for one man, and that man is, once again, Sam Greco. So Sam saw something in Bob, and he saw something in that performance. He passed it along to an executive at the Japanese kickboxing company, K1. That executive saw something, too. Between both of these men, they were able to see something in Bob that nobody else on earth, including... The most powerful man in pro wrestling and, and other just luminaries or people of extensive experience, extensive success, none of these people were able to see that star quality that Bob had with the exception of these two men. So despite the fact that he had no kickboxing, like I said, he, at least you could say he had some boxing experience because he boxed the fridge, but he had no kickboxing experience. And... It can be difficult for trained boxers, not even not even just trained boxers, the best boxers, the best woman's boxer on the planet, Miss Shields. Man, she's training for MMA right now. She's uh, she's already had a fight in the PFL, and she says for her the hardest thing for her to incorporate into her game is kicks. They're two vastly different sciences, and Bob didn't have any experience with. Boxing or kickboxing didn't fucking matter. They booked him, and they booked him against a guy that was, like, fucking half his size. Like, I don't know if it was literal half his size. If the guy was 175 and smaller, it could have been literal half his size. And uh, he just fucking did, did what Bob Sapp does, and he destroyed the guy. And he got booked in another match against another guy that was super-duper smaller than him but the thing was is that in this fight Bob was you know achieving success he dropped the guy and when the guy fell down Bob just didn't stop fucking hitting him and kickboxing is boxing with kicks but the rules are the same and I'm gonna say it's not boxing with kicks there's more to that than that but the rules as far as hitting a downed opponent in kickboxing whether it's point kickboxing or full contact kickboxing like this the points are the same. Someone falls down, stop fucking hitting them. Bob did not stop fucking hitting them, and he ended up getting himself disqualified. So since this is an audio-based podcast and there are no visual aids to show you what Bob looked like in these first couple of fights, it's worth touching on his style for a second. And, uh, you know, when I think of, like, very smooth, efficient, effective strikers, you know, with really good head movement, good footwork, throw great kicks, great jab, great one-twos, I think of guys like uh, Rob Font, who's a bantamweight in the UFC. I think of uh, Rafael Fasiev, who's a lightweight in the UFC. I do not think of Bob Sapp. So with the exception of a couple of fights, Bob had just a gigantic weight, size, period, height, everything. Just a huge advantage in size against pretty much everybody he fought. This meant that he wouldn't run in there with a lot of technique. He would run. He would rush you. Whoever he's fighting, he's rushing, and he would load up these just huge fucking punches you'd see coming from a mile away. But when a 350-pound 
muscle, just one big ass muscle hits you, even if you blocked it, that shit's still going to hurt. And you can't block and miss, you know, all of them, unless you're Neo from the Matrix or some shit, you're going to get hit at some point. Unless you knock him out or tap him before he can hit you, you're going to have to catch one of those. And one's enough from somebody that size, no matter how bad he's throwing it or whatever his form looks like or the fact that he telegraphed it. Who cares? That shit hurts. And he would throw a lot of haymakers, big hooks. Sometimes, and in some of these fights, he would get the fucking shit kicked out of him. He would take damage. He would take a lot of damage. Just his his <laughs> boxing defense, not good. Or just touching his face up, bouncing stuff off him. I don't know if I've ever seen him like check a leg kick. None of these things. But what he had was his agility as a big guy and his power. So regardless of uh, these, uh, you can call them, if you want to call them technical deficiencies, go for it. I won't, but these perceived technical deficiencies and even like being kind of a dick after that fight, it didn't matter. Like he gained a lot of popularity. He was an instant success. Like he was very charismatic on the microphone. He had this big outsized personality. I mean, big just like outsized everything. And he was super fucking aggressive. He was kill or be killed in those early days. It was going to be one or the other, but he was such a success so fast with those fans. And the fans, you know, they're worth touching on as well. The Japanese fans, when, when I first got into MMA, I would say in my mind, some people might disagree. I don't know if many will, but the premier MMA organization at that time was based in Japan and it was called Pride FC or just Pride. And I was a big fan. I was ordering the pay-per-views. They would have these super duper technical and win by the hair of your ass fights so close. And the fans there are dead silent. The fans that I saw during that time would be quiet and contrast that with sometimes fans in the States where they're like, if people are grappling, you, know, you hear people boo and they're like, boring, this is boring. And it, it kind of uh, it kind of frosts my ass a little bit when I hear it, but it is what it is. But in Japan, not only are they focused on what's going on in the fight and silent, I've never seen this anywhere else in the world. But I remember seeing a fight where a guy it was one of the early fights I watched. A guy passed somebody's guard. Which means, you know, the guy is past one or both of the legs. People started clapping and cheering. And I was like, holy shit. And it's not just how they are during fights, but also the level of respect and appreciation and support. Not just for the, the legends and the current athletes, but just the sport itself is fucking rock solid. And it's admirable. But... Japan is also home to what uh, people in the MMA world still call freak show fights. And you want an example? All right, check it out. Do you want to see MMA pioneer and legend Hoist Gracie fight a 500-pound sumo wrestler named Akibono? Okay, cool. Yeah, we got you covered, dude. Uh, what about a different sumo fighting a 7-foot-plus former basketball player? Fuck it. Why not? And you know who would become the king of these types of matches during this time? Bob the Beast Sap. But before he would participate in any of these kinds of freak show fights, he would face his greatest test at that time in a man named Antonio Rodrigo Nogueira, also known 
as Minotaro, or as we like to call him, Big Nog. And this would be a fight under MMA rules. But what was going through Big Nog's mind when he was standing in that ring, looking across at Bob Sapp? Let's try to imagine ourselves in that situation. You're Minotaro, standing in your corner, listening to the rapid-fire Portuguese language advice from your cornerman, jiu-jitsu legend Mario Sperry. But you don't listen. Not now or really at any point during the fight. Sure, you have a game plan, but it's only the best game plan your team could come up with in the 15 days since you were offered the fight. As you look at the beast, you shake your head, knowing that you weren't even supposed to fight him. Your original opponent, Mark Hunt, an incredibly tough opponent himself, is at least physically more manageable. Unlike Hunt, you're a jiu-jitsu fighter. And not just a jiu-jitsu fighter, but a black belt and one of the best practitioners of the gentle art on planet Earth. And while you're not as big as the beast, you're still a pretty big dude, standing at six foot three and weighing in at 230 pounds. You're confident you can win, and will win, this fight. You know you can finish the fight in any position, attacking your opponent's neck, arms, legs, regardless of where they have you. Most of all, you know you can take a punch. Everyone knows you can take a punch. You feel the scar on your back, remembering when the truck hit you back in Bahia when you were 10 years old. There's no way he or anyone else could ever hurt you as badly as you were hurt that day. But, but as you look over at the mountain that is Bob Sapp, along with the 91,000 fans in attendance, you think it'll sure as hell try. So first and foremost, this fight just needs to be watched really to, to understand and marvel at just something insane. I've seen crazy fights. Like, I've, I've seen crazy fights live. I've seen crazy fights, you know, just stumbling across them on YouTube. You know, I saw Fry and Takayama. I saw Wei Lee versus Joanna as it was happening. Fedor versus Randleman. Like, I saw Chuck Liddell versus Vanderlei Silva live. Like, I was at UFC 79. But I've never seen anything that's like this fight here. So it's the only MMA fight I've ever seen where someone attempted a pile driver and also landed powerbomb. And for those unaware, those are pro wrestling moves. And pro wrestling moves are done with the cooperation of both parties to ensure the safety of the move and to make sure that the move looks good. That's two guys or a man and a woman, two women, whoever, working together. And uh, this was Bob Sapp by himself doing this to hurt Big Nog. So Antonio Rodrigo, he, uh, he absorbed just a fucking ton of damage. Bob Sapp was as big and jacked and possibly chemically assisted at that time as he could get. And he threw just these fucking huge hooks, the same huge hooks that he threw at everybody. And he landed ground and pound that looked like it was going to pop fucking Minotauro's head off. It was just vicious. And this is, like I said, a 350-pound man hitting another man as hard as he could. And in very rap or rapid-fire enough fashion, Big Nog would end up with both of his cheekbones broken in the fight. And the pile driver that Bob landed on him at the start of the fight, his neck is still fucked up from that and uh somehow he endured it it must have felt like a fucking eternity while he was in there just getting beat on but you know as the fight progressed so 
this was done under Pride's rules because it was an MMA fight. The first round in Pride is 10 minutes. So in the UFC, they have either, uh, in most MMA organizations, three fives or five fives if it's a title fight. Pride was <laughs> one ten and two fives. And that 10 minutes had to feel like 10 hours. And in the second round, Bob, he started to sag a little bit. He started to just tire. And in the midst of that, Antonio Rodrigo caught him in an arm bar and submitted him. Bob tapped. And despite losing, his popularity exploded even further. And the fans showed him an immense amount of respect for his performance. And like I said, uh, he... He, he put it on probably at that point the the recognized best heavyweight in the world. Well, that might be debatable. I would rank before the ascent of uh, Fedor Emelianenko, not, not long after this fight, I would rank Antonio Rodrigo up there as the best heavyweight on earth, and he fucking put it on him bad. Um, kudos to him. More kudos to Antonio Rodrigo Minotaro. Uh, for for making it through the fight and winning. There's there's some that have the assumption that if somebody is just big enough, that negates anything else. That negates the other person's power, skill, level of experience. And um, this fight almost proved that. But he would have another chance soon enough. So in circumstances similar to how his fight with uh, Antonio Rodrigo was booked, meaning... He was a replacement for somebody else. I believe, I think uh, Ernesto was supposed to fight Cindy Schilt, but I could be mistaken. But he's supposed to fight a man named Ernesto Hoost, who was, just happened to be one of the greatest kickboxers ever, you know, four-time world champion in kickboxing. And he was going to fight Ernesto Hoost in a kickboxing match. So that means no pile drivers, no power bombs, no ground and pound, nothing. And aside from just being gigantic, it didn't seem like anything else was really going in Bob's favor. But it didn't dampen his confidence either, because he predicted he was going to win the fight. And he was right. He predicted right. The fight was stopped after the first round by the doctor. There was there was a lot of controversy uh, in this stoppage, particularly because Bob hit him multiple times after the bell. But regardless, it was still a really big upset. Bob said it best himself. He said it was like taking someone off the street and throwing him in the ring with Mike Tyson and then watching that person win. Multiple millions of people saw the fight and, you know, there was a lot of interest in a rematch. So, naturally, a rematch was booked. This second fight, Bob Sapp versus Ernesto Hoos 2, similar to the fight with Antonio Rodrigo, you have to watch this one as well. I'll say that it's also the inverse of that fight. For the first round, Ernesto beat the fuck out of him. Oh my god. And it was the, it was the leg kick. So to those who who might not be familiar with what I'm talking about, you wouldn't you say, "Okay, Connor, aren't like all kicks with your legs?" They are, but these are kicks to the legs and these were kicks particularly to his thighs. And not only were these brutal in addition to just punching Bob in the face a lot as hard as he could, he was landing some really fucking brutal body shots too. There's early, if you watch the fight, early-ish in that first round, you, uh, the crowd, as I said, the crowd is quiet. Ernesto lands a hook 
to the body. You just hear, oh, and that's Bob Sapp grunting. It was actually a hook, you know, to the body that dropped Bob. But I'm thinking, knowing what we know now about calf kicks, and particularly when you kick somebody in the calf, you land that kick on the knee, like right on the knee without, you don't want to kick somebody's knee. That's how you can get your leg broken. But, and also please don't take martial arts advice from me ever. Just forget I said anything about throwing shit. But, uh, you know, you kick somebody there. I've seen it in fights, most notably um, it happened to Sean O'Malley. It happened to uh, Conor McGregor in his fight most recently with Dustin Poirier. It just deadens your leg. You can't use it. You can, you can barely walk on it. Uh, I think it is uh, Jimmy Croom. Um, it happened to him. I saw that. And then the, the shit that we won't talk about that happened in the next fight. But uh, he got his leg deadened by Anthony Smith. Imagine knowing that now. If Ernesto was throwing those those kind of kicks, because Bob wasn't checking any of them, those were landing and landing and landing and landing and landing, and I'm sure his leg was completely fucked the next day. But even in that fight, the fact that he remained standing, it's not uncommon in kickboxing for fights to be ended by leg kick. Bob, I'll say this: I don't know if this really gets the attention vis-a-vis maybe some of the other facets of Bob's career. But in this you know fight particularly and in the early part of his career, Bob had a lot of heart. Like I said, he got dropped by a body shot. I've been dropped by a body shot before. I did not get back up and fight. I, I couldn't breathe. Uh, I got hit in the solar plexus. It was over for me. Bob took that, got back up, and kept fighting, kept fighting, kept fighting. And like I said previously... With a guy like Bob, landing one can put somebody out, period. But landing and landing and landing and landing, it's going to take its toll. And towards the end of the first round, the unexpected began to occur as Bob started landing these shots. Then, in the second round, the unthinkable happened. Bob knocked out Ernesto Hoos, one of the greatest ever. A man with multiple victories over some of the other greatest ever, got knocked out by a wild haymaker, and it ended up proving the assumption true. Size could actually beat technique and skill. You only needed to be as big as Bob Sapp. So we're going to veer away from uh, his combat sports career just for a moment. We're going to talk about just his popularity. And um, to say he was popular during this time and for the few years that would follow uh, would really be an understatement. Like Bob Sapp was a phenomenon in Japan at this time. And for years after, and it wasn't just in the fight world. You could look at pro wrestling as almost being parallel to combat sports. Perhaps I could see the correlation. There, there have been people to go from the UFC and organizations like this into pro wrestling. And there has even been a pro wrestler as the heavyweight champion of the world before. So the two are linked in a way. But he branched into pro wrestling in Japan, which has its own cult following as well. And actually kind of the dynamics of having super serious technical matches <laughs> contrasted by crazy shit really mirrors MMA. But out, even outside of this, he became a legitimate celebrity. And it would have seemed absurd to him. He was moving coffins and when he was out of the league and on his ass, it would have just seemed absolutely absurd to him at that point in his life, that he would ever reach the amount of fame that he had. 
and um, it w it was mostly in Japan, but even got he got so popular there that it even crossed over to America to a, to an extent. But it landed him role in the movie The Longest Yard, which I saw. It was what it was. But I've never been in a movie before, so what the fuck can I say? He would just get mobbed like everywhere he went. Like anyway, they're rushing him. People were just fascinated by him. He had all kinds of fucking merchandise and shit with his face on it. And he even had like a, he had a rap album. It was just, you know, Bob Sapp has a crazy voice. And he would do his voice up for this beast persona. And everything was exaggerated. Big movements. He would dance. He would scream. Tear shit up. And uh, they just ate it up there. And uh, the rap album is pretty much <laughs> in the same vein. And this, this was his peak. This was the peak of his career, both as an athlete in, in terms of his fame and in light of what would come later, this was his peak. So following that second Ernesto Luce match, he was paired up to fight my favorite fighter of all time, a guy named Mirko Filipovic, also or better known as Mirko Krokop. So, you know, once again, this is a guy in Bob Sapp that even though he's working with a legit team. It's not like he had bullshit people around him. He had legends and pioneers in the sport. He had at AMC Pancration in Seattle where he trained. That was one of the premier MMA schools in the country at that time. Um, and there weren't a lot of them in contrast to everything that's out there now. You know, we're talking about the sport isn't even 10 years old by this point. And kickboxing and MMA taking off to the extent that they did was still kind of in the infancy of everything. And he had he had the best training he could have gotten. He was working with Maurice Smith, who was a champion kickboxer and MMA fighter. And he was, you know, Maurice Smith was one of the early pioneers of MMA in America and legendary kickboxer. And he had MMA legend Josh Barnett. He was working with them. He was working with uh, Mr. Matt Hume. He, he didn't lack for training, but he just didn't have that much time. And once again... He's now faced a, you know, he's facing a super specialist akin to Ernesto Hoost. He's facing a guy that during the decades that his career lasted, Krokop fought in Japan. He fought in America. He was in the UFC. Uh, he fought in Dream. He fought, you know, he was in K1. He fought all over the place. And not only was he a dangerous kickboxer, but he also developed into an elite MMA fighter. Um, he was renowned for, you know, his accuracy, you know, his power. He, he was a very stoic, you know, he had a good sense of humor. You can find videos of him just kind of goofing off and stuff on YouTube. But, you know, he was mostly a stoic guy. He wasn't really talking shit. He would go in there and try to kill you. And his favorite technique was the left high kick. And, you know, he's a tall guy himself. He's probably, I think Mirko's like 6'2 or so. I've seen him kick Alexander Emelianenko in the head. And Alex Emelianenko is 6'6", and he was knocking people out, knock multiple people out, probably with just one technique, trip off this, with just one technique, he probably knocked out in his career combined between MMA and kickboxing, probably at least, if not more than 10 people with just that kick. It wasn't a kick that stopped this one. So Bob came out and did what he did, but Mirko has, or had, I believe he was retired, really great movement. So Mirko wouldn't let you trap him in a corner and just bomb on him. No, Mirko's getting out of there. He's setting up his next shot. And it was like that in the early part. 
and it was actually a left straight that followed a liver punch that landed dead on Bob's eye. It broke his orbital bone, and as my mom would say, uh, it sent him to the ground like a bag of shit. Fight called, Bob Sapp loses. Though Bob had lost uh, previously in MMA, it was his first loss in kickboxing, but more important to the story, it was also his first major injury incurred during his combat sports career. He'd fight six months later, but the experience seemed to stick with Bob, especially in his later years. He continued on with his career during this time, at one point fighting in a freak show super match, super duper match against Ake Bono, who was uh, referred to earlier, drawing 45,000 fans to the arena and being watched by 54 million people at home. And ultimately, he knocked Ake Bono out. But with this fight aside, Bob fought serious fighters, and he was a serious fighter himself. He faltered against the more talented competition, you know, Kazuki Fujita beat him, Jerome LeBanner, uh, one of the best kickboxers ever, beat him as well. But he was committed to fighting, and like I said, he had a very reputable, talented team that was guiding him. He even won three fights in one night during the 2005 Hiroshima Grand Prix. It was a high point, but low points would follow. In 2006, Bob was supposed to fight Ernesto Hoos in what would be Ernesto's final fight to be held in Holland. Ultimately, Bob walked away from the event, claiming that he was told he would be given a contract after the fight happened. Why he was offered a retroactive contract and why those asking him to sign it, why they would ever expect him to do that, who knows. But considering his previous experience, you know, being ripped off and defrauded, he said, fuck this, and he walked out. And I can understand where he would come from with that. He's been fucked with before. Seems like he's being fucked with currently. He said, adios, I'm out of here. And he would only fight for K1 one more time. Sadly, he lost in 20 seconds to legend Peter Ayers. Um, I, I believe that was also a body shot. So after this fight, everything just took a different turn for him. And for the next decade, uh, this is probably the part of Bob's career that a lot of folks are most familiar and most critical of. But for the next decade, he would work just uh, a lot of small shows and get knocked out by pretty much everybody he fought and by people that were considered lesser talents than him. Um, a lot of people actually accused him of throwing fights. But you got to understand, Bob, by this point, he's in his late 30s or his early 40s. Clearly, he viewed that situation differently. When he was working for K1, he was getting paid. They, they were hooking him up. He was getting big money for those big fights he was in. And it was lovely. It was lovely. Not only that, he was making money from his merchandise and just his general celebrity was drawing in a lot of cash. So if he was going to take an ass whooping, which he did, took some ass whoopings, he was going to have to take some ass whoopings for some checks. Now he's at these smaller shows, and despite the fact that they're smaller shows, it's not like he can't get injured all the same. And when you think about his age, I, I know for a fact you don't recover as fast as you get older. As you get older, something that you might sleep off Man, that shit might be fucking with you for, for, you know, a couple days. You go to the gym, you're like, oh, man, I'm doing the right thing. I'm going to go, I'm going to hit these weights, I'm going to run, try to get out of bed the next day, and you're damn near crying. You're like, I'm never doing this shit again. This is your late 30s and early 40s. Welcome. He had to be going through that. So 
fighting in these shows where he could get just as injured, if not more so, because he might be a little bit more susceptible to injury because he's not moving as fast. He's lost his agility. Maybe he's not handling his weight as well. Uh, The likelihood of getting injured might even be more. I mean, simply put, if you wanted to really hurt Bob, you're going to have to pay him a hell of a lot more than these promoters during this time (laughs) were offering him. He go out there. He swing a little bit, and uh, as soon as he got hit with anything, man, he could have gotten hit with a jab. He could have gotten hit with the guy's breath. He was falling over. He was acting like he got hit with a machete. It was over. Fight's over. So, uh, former fighter, current podcaster, this guy named Josh the Punk Thompson, and uh, he was on an episode of the Joe Rogan Experience, and he said that Bob personally told him, when Bob talks to promoters, he says, up front. 60 G's. That's that's what I need. I need 60 G's, and what you get is a minute and 20 of me actually fighting. At 121, fight's over. I'm going down. And the promoters seem to be fine with this arrangement. They didn't seem to have any problem with it. If you look at Bob's record, you can see he was active during this time. And for the promoters, they were happy to have a big name. Some guy that is known the world over, especially a lot of these fights were happening in Europe. Maybe people aren't really coming out. And for the casuals, uh, casual fans, curious fans, fucking people are like, holy shit, that guy looks crazy. I want to see that dude fight. They'll go to something like that if Bob Sapp is in town. And the promoters couldn't give two fucks. Once those people buy the tickets and sit down and watch the fight, they don't give a shit if the fight's good or not. And this is pretty much how Bob proceeded until he retired. He said he saved millions, but he ended up spending a lot of money on what would be costly medical bills at the same time. So with the end of his career looking the way it does, there isn't really much to discuss. But we can discuss his legacy. And when it comes to his legacy, I'm a little bit torn. So first and foremost, him, you know, Bob the Beast Sap, and anybody that goes and fights, whether they fight in a cage or fight in a ring, they get my respect. There's a guy, Colby Covington, that is kind of a lightning rod for either support, hate, extreme support, extreme hate. He says a lot of stuff publicly that I think he doesn't even believe privately. But he still says it, and it's stuff I'm (laughs) in super disagreement with. Does he even have my respect? Absolutely. It takes the war machines and the, the people of that nature, Mike Whitehead's and Joe Sons and people like that, they get no respect. But you go and you fight, you have my respect. Have I ever gone and stepped in a ring or stepped in a cage? No. I've had uh, point karate fights, which I can tell you for a fact, we're not trying to, we weren't trying to hit each other and we were kids at that. I can say I've got my ass kicked in the street for free. Like I never got paid a fucking cent for any of those fights. And that's happened plenty of times. But I say all that to say it would behoove me and anyone else who gives opinions on fighters to remember that ultimately we're just the guys or the whoever talking about them. And because they go and go and fight, that gives us the ability to talk about them. And, you know, it's not an easy life for these folks. Men and women many times have gone into fights with lingering injuries, get injured in fights, suffer trauma to their brains. Folks got to deal with substance abuse. 
They spend a lot of time away from their families and their children. And a lot of times also folks end up in countries where they don't speak the language. And it's all for an opportunity to do something that most of us are too fucking scared to do. So if we're going to pass judgment, you know, publicly at that, about somebody who did all of this and who risked his health in front of millions of people, you know, all while myself and all of us who didn't go and fight just sat there and fucking watched him do it, that would make me a jackass, man. That would make us jackasses. And I'll say for myself, I'm not a jackass. So instead, I'll just try to understand his motivations. As Bob got older and his big time, you know, meal ticket left him, he knew that his options were pretty limited. The market in Japan for MMA and kickboxing was huge, but he was exiled from the premier kickboxing organization, K1. And the MMA market in Japan collapsed and still hasn't fully recovered ever since there was a scandal involving the Japanese organized crime group called, well, there's not, it's not called the group because it's not like everybody belongs to the same fucking, you know, the same uh, Yakuza family. But the Yakuza is what organized crime groups that fit Yakuza criteria in Japan, that is what they're called. And it's believed that the Yakuza were in control of the Pride. So Pride ended up folding and they were the biggest MMA market, not just at that time in Japan, but in the world. Pride was the big show until the UFC was able to reverse that with the debut of the show The Ultimate Fighter. But as far as him going to the UFC, the UFC wouldn't sign him. So this was the pre-USADA times. So he might have been able to work with the supplemental program a little better and, and figure out the ins and outs a little bit if he chose to do so. But it wasn't like Japan where they just said, fuck it, man, just show up. Like you, It was almost like in Japan, you better show up on steroids because everybody else is already doing them. So unless you want to be the one dude not on steroids and getting fucked up by everybody else that is, you might as well do them. And there's, I'm not saying it was like that in the UFC during that time, but perhaps more importantly, the heavyweight limit for fighters was 265 pounds. It still is. And there was no way in hell Bob was ever going to make that. So this left him having to book his fights in these smaller shows along with their smaller checks, along with the very real pain. At some point, really at any point, something like what happened against Krokop, it could happen again, or something even worse. What if he didn't tap to an arm bar or a heel hook fast enough? What if he tried to fight through it and got his arm snapped? What if he got knocked unconscious and all 350 plus of them landed on his neck? Since he wouldn't be fighting the top level talent anyway, there was really no point in pursuing fighting seriously. Would it be my path? Who's to say? Can I knock him for going this route? No. Do I think it reflects badly on the sport? No. I think it reflects on Bob Sapp. And especially it reflects on the promoters that booked him during this time. So would this behavior hurt the sport in its earlier stages when it was still striving for legitimacy? Perhaps. Perhaps. By the time Bob started going about it this way, though, the UFC had already taken off. And you can see that in the frequency in shows. You can see it in the UFC adding so many other divisions. For a time, the 155 division didn't exist. Lightweight didn't exist. A lot of people think it's the most, the UFC's 155 division is the most competitive division, the most exciting division, not only in the UFC, but just in MMA, period. And... 
you know, it was still in its earlier stages more prone to questions about its integrity. Obviously, in the early stages of MMA, it was called human cockfighting. It was just looked at as uh, gladiator fights come back and just barbaric and shady and just it, it wasn't celebrated as a great sport. Certainly not like now where many, including myself, considered the best sport on earth. It wasn't like that. So perhaps, yeah, it could have his actions had he decided to choose, you know, to go about it at that time when there was negative attention and scrutiny on MMA. Yeah. If it looks like there's a guy openly throwing fights, perhaps you also have to remember that fools were throwing fights at that time, though. At the earliest time, if you read Ken Shamrock's book, he admits to throwing fights. There's known thrown fights. People were going about it. I guess ultimately, I just look at his legacy in two stages. The stage earlier in his career where he was a legitimate athlete and a potential contender. He, he could have won a title at some point, perhaps in pride. I could have seen it happen. He could have won, expanded on his success in kickboxing. And he's also, in remembering his legacy, the participant in two of the craziest fights I've ever seen in my life. It was pretty phenomenal what he was able to accomplish with no experience. And given the fact that most guys that fight his size just end up being punching bags. Then there's a period after. There's really nothing to say about it. It's just a guy chasing a paycheck, doing something he probably didn't care to do. But it was the only thing he knew how to do to get paid. Ultimately, that's not that much different for most of us. I want to thank you for listening today. In the future, I'll be doing more MMA-related content. But I hope you enjoyed what I presented today. Next week, I will be taking the show to the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, where I will be discussing Bodan Himelnitsky, his Cossack uprising, and all those caught in the middle. This has been Brain Drain, and I'm Connor McCann. I thank you once again.